the uh, text, Wheel of Sharp Weapons, starts with uh, Dharma Rakshata <coughs> contrasting on the one hand Bodhisattvas practicing Donglen, giving and taking, taking on from others the three poisonous, uh, disturbing states of mind or emotions, these toxic states of mind, which are uh, longing, desire, or attachment, greed, these type of things, in terms of uh, ordinary pleasures, and uh, anger, repulsion, and naivety, closed-mindedness, and uh, taking on the sufferings that uh, come from that. And that's what bodhisattvas do. And the contrast of that is ordinary beings who, rather than taking on and transforming the three poisonous attitudes are damaged by them. It causes them to act in destructive types of way, ways. Bodhisattvas are likened to peacocks, eating poisonous plants and transforming them into nutrients to strengthen themselves. And ordinary beings are like crows who would be killed if they tried to do the same. So the point being that if we are strong enough as bodhisattvas and are trained well enough that we need to be able to take on the uh, three poisons of all beings and uh, give to them the antidotes and happiness. And to do this we need to get rid of our selfish desires which come from grasping for a true self. So we need to overcome this belief in the true self. So in these early initial verses, uh, Dharma Rakshita writes, in the case of peacocks, strutting in jungles of poisonous plants. Although medicine gardens have been finely decked out, the masses of peacocks don't find them enjoyable. Rather, peacocks thrive on the nutriment of poisonous plants. Now here, longing desire is like the poisonous plant jungles. Brave ones like peacocks can take it under their control, whereas to the lives of cowards it would be deadly, similar to the case of crows. How could those with selfish desires take this poison under their control? And if they similarly tried to apply this method to the other disturbing emotions, it would take the life of their liberation, also similar to the case of crows. Thus it's the case that brave-hearted bodhisattvas like peacocks transform into a nutriment of disturbing emotions, which are like the jungles of poison, and thereby engage themselves in the jungles of recurring samsara, and having gladly taken it on themselves, they're able to destroy this poison. So now, while we're circling in samsara without control, we must cast away our selfish desires, our desires for pleasures, our delights, these messengers of the demon of grasping at a true self, and gladly take on for the purposes of others what's difficult to do. We must pile it on top of this true self that has desires for pleasures, the, su- uh, the sufferings appropriate to each of the nine kinds of beings due to the push from their karmic impulses and their habituation to disturbing emotions. So the emphasis here is on taking on from others ordinary desire. And uh, I think that this emphasis on longing desire, particularly lust, sexual lust, we find uh, emphasized uh, in so many uh, Indian uh, texts, particularly Shantideva, points out how lust is the biggest obstacle to gaining the perfection of concentration. It's what is the strongest uh, 
um, mover of the mind, you know, flightiness of the mind to fly off to uh, think about uh, this uh, biological desire, actually hormonal-based desire. So it's very uh, deep within us and uh, within all uh, um, beings that have this uh, sexual drive. And uh, this is something that many of us don't really want to, uh, don't feel comfortable about with uh, the Buddhist teachings that basically we have to overcome biology. You know, these biological drives and not just be driven by our hormones and uh, our instincts. Now, Dharma Rakshita doesn't explain how to do this practice of uh, don't let, to, he just says it's really dangerous and really difficult. And for us, you know, it's very difficult to do and we need to overcome the obstacles that prevent us from doing it. But he doesn't actually clearly state here how to do that. In his other text in, called Peacock's Destruction of Poison, he simply states, in the face of the boiling poisonous potion of karmic impulses from longing desire, if we don't match it with something else, a similitude of longing desire, then there's the danger that we will be drawn into committing inappropriate acts by those with longing desire. So destroy this poison with a similitude of longing desire. Similitude means something similar to longing desire. It's not that when we take on these disturbing emotions that then, you know, we, uh, on the one hand, that we're really able to do it. That's very, very rare that uh, one actually you know, like the example of Maitri Yoga, that you could take a bruise on yourself and you're actually bruised. So when we take on, for instance, the stupidity of everybody, it's not that now we are, you know, completely stupid. Uh, we want to take on, uh, you know, uh, basically a, in a conceptual process, you know, what is similar, a concept of, uh, you know, an idea of all of this, you know, of the, all the longing desire. So we imagine taking it on. So in this sense, a similitude, he uses this word, you know, like desire. Uh, and he uses that for anger and he uses that for naivety as well. But uh, then the question is, you know, once we imagine taking on all, you know, removing, may all beings be free of uh, this cause, you know, the cause, this cause of suffering and the suffering that it uh, uh, brings to everybody, then the question is how to destroy it. And according to Gunjok Gelsen, the Sakya compiler of the anthology, Hundreds of Mind Trainings, he points out that Dharma Rakshita taught developing deepest bodhicitta first rather than uh, conventional bodhicitta. You know, there are two ways of approaching the development of bodhicitta. The uh, first way, which is easier for most uh, people, is you develop, you know, tremendous concern for others. So conventional bodhicitta first, love, compassion, I really have to attain enlightenment in order to be able to benefit everyone. And then in order to attain it, I need to have discipline, concentration and this discriminating awareness, and then we develop deepest bodhicitta. So this we find in uh, many, many texts. But uh, the other way of doing it, which uh, Nagarjuna 
uses in his text, uh, the uh, Bodhicitta commentary, or commentary on Bodhicitta, is for those, he explains, for those who are of sharper minds, sharper intelligence, they develop deepest bodhicitta first. And the reason for that is that uh, if you become convinced that it's possible to purify the mind of the disturbing emotions and the obscurations, in other words, you understand the voidness of uh, the mind, the mental you know, activity, and so on, so you understand how the um, so-called defilements, you know, these uh, um, ignorance, not knowing, and so on, are not an intrinsic part of the nature of the mind, therefore they can be removed, then you become convinced that enlightenment is possible. And only once you are fully convinced that enlightenment is possible, through the understanding of deepest bodhicitta, then would you have the aim to attain it with conventional bodhicitta. Otherwise, you know, with just developing conventional bodhicitta, it's basically on faith that, you know, well, I'm going to aim for enlightenment, I don't really know that it's possible, but, you know, I will try going in that direction. So, uh, he says, Nagarjuna points out that for those that are, you know, of uh, more um, sharp mind, he says, sharp uh, faculties, they would develop the deepest bodhicitta first. So, according to this uh, Sakya compiler of all these mind training texts, he said that Dharma Rakshita taught developing deepest bodhicitta first. And then uh, after that, on the basis of uh, conventional bodhicitta, the practice of equalizing self and others and exchanging self with others. So practicing Donglen on the basis of understanding voidness is the method here. And we find this uh, same thing in the seven point mind training by Geshe Chikawa, where the second point, developing bodhicitta, he explains deepest bodhicitta first, and then developing conventional bodhicitta through Donglen, and taking on the poisonous, the three poisonous attitudes. This is in the seven point mind training. He says, in regard to the three objects, those beings whom I, you have to fill in, those beings whom I find attractive, unattractive, or neutral, take the three poisonous attitudes, longing, desire, repulsion, or naivety, and give the three roots of what's constructive, detachment, imperturbability, you know, you can't be disturbed by anger, or lack of naivety, while training with words in all paths of behavior. As for the order of taking, start from myself. Train with words. Uh, this is uh, this point in meditation that uh, when we are uh, losing our object of focus, that uh, it's very helpful and it's not a form of mental wandering to remind ourselves with words, we can either say in our minds or uh, out loud, of key words to bring us, our attention back to the uh, object of focus, whether that word is compassion or love or impermanence or whatever it is that uh, we're meditating on. We find this uh, instruction here. And the order of taking start from myself. So we need to accept our own sufferings and deal with them because uh, it's only on the basis of renunciation, this determination to be free from our own sufferings, that then we can turn the focus that just as I want to be free from all of this, 
everybody is equal and everybody else wants to be free from it. So the basis for compassion is this determination to be free from problems ourselves. It's just expanded to everybody. So when we feel lust, you know, for uh, somebody or desire, you know, it can be uh, any type of longing uh, desire. It could be longing desire, as we were explaining before, for information to see, you know, what is everybody doing in, you know, like Facebook or Instagram or, you know, uh, Snapchat, whatever it is that uh, we're into. And that's uh, this longing desire. Uh, so when we are feeling that, rather than following it out, which would be like a crow to uh, get caught up and, uh, uh, you know, we lose all our concentration and attention, etc., when we're constantly checking our phone, that instead of acting like that, we pile on top of ourselves. You know, it reminds us, you know, everybody else has so much trouble with uh, this addiction. And so I imagine taking all of that onto my self and we counter it with deepest bodhicitta. So how do we do this? Uh, what we do is we settle into the basic nature of awareness or the mind. And Geshe Chikawa uh, uses the Sakya terminology. He calls it uh, the state of the all-encompassing basis. That's the alaya, if you're familiar with the Sanskrit term. And there are, uh, uh, so the basic nature of the mind. And there are two traditions for uh, explaining this. One is that the all-encompassing uh, basis refers to the nature of the mind as mere clarity and awareness. You know, by dissolving it into this nature of the mind, letting it settle into the basic nature of the mind. This, I think, is similar to what we have in this concert of names of Manjushri, like a great offering festival, you know, that we offer this into this, uh, the festival of the nature of the mind. So you let it settle down and we dissolve the emotion, the disturbing emotions by seeing them in this sort of Mahamudra type of way as being just waves on the ocean of this clarity and awareness of the mind. You know, the mind is like this great ocean and you have this disturbance which is like a wave but the wave can do nothing except settle back down. So that's uh, one way when we take on these uh, disturbing emotions and so on then you just let it settle into that uh, the basic clarity and awareness of the mind. The other tradition is that we settle into the void nature of that uh, clarity and awareness. So there's the so-called conventional nature and the deepest nature of uh, the mind. And the fourth part of uh, this Wheel of Sharp Weapons suggests that Dharma Rakshita prefer prefers this because he makes the big emphasis on this uh, void nature of the mind. So to take on the uh, longing, desire, and lust we first need to recognize how un acting under its influence brings suffering. Even just feeling lust causes uh, suffering. Yes, our mind is very, very much disturbed about that. And so Chikawa, Geshe Chikawa teaches in the Seven Point Mind Training to start with ourselves. Try to recognize it in ourselves 
what it, you know, the disturbance of this longing desire, what it actually is. And so there we need to look at the uh, definitions that we find in Abhidharma. Uh, there, each of these uh, mental factors is uh, defined very clearly. We have uh, different traditions of, of Abhidharma and uh, different texts, and you try to put together, you know, get a larger picture from different points of view of what this uh, state of mind actually is. And the main thing that characterizes uh, this uh, longing desire is that it exaggerates the good qualities of its object and it uh, tends to project further good qualities that aren't there and ignores the shortcomings, the negative qualities of uh, something. And I think they, we can divide it into uh, three different uh, variants. One is uh, if we uh, don't have the object, then there's longing desire to get it. You know, this is the most beautiful person in the world, you know, you exaggerate that. You know, if uh, I only could uh, have this person as my girlfriend or boyfriend, you know, everything would be perfect. This is the prince or princess on the white horse, and we want to get them. So that's longing desire. And attachment is when we have them, we don't want to let go. Don't ever leave me, I can't leave without you, and so on. And uh, the uh, third variant is uh, greed. You know, even if we have them, no matter how much time they spend with us is never enough. You know, why don't you call me? Why don't you stay longer? Why do you have to leave now? You know, you haven't texted me, you know, you didn't uh, answer instantly. All these sort of uh, things. That is uh, greed. We want more. We're never satisfied. So all of these, uh, I think, are uh, covered by, you know, this one disturbing emotion, depending on whether we don't have the object yet, <laughs> we already have it and don't want to let go, and of course we want more and more. We're never satisfied, never satisfied. You know, there are many different ways that you could uh, 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 think of uh, how we deal with longing uh, desire. Let's say, you know, do you really want to be, have this person glued to you, you know, so that no matter where you go, you know, they're with you and so on. It's like, you know, when you're holding somebody's hand after a while, you know, it starts to sweat and uh, becomes very uncomfortable and so on. So, do I want this forever? Uh, one starts to think of the uh, disadvantages of uh, having that, you know. You sleep in each other's arms and your arm falls asleep and then it really hurts and you know you can't really move because you're gonna wake the other person up and all these sort of <laughs> things that uh, if one actually analyzes we exaggerate the good qualities and ignore the shortcomings that's longing uh, desire so uh, we exaggerate uh, conventional qualities like the beauty of somebody, how wonderful it is to be with them, and we exaggerate the uh, deepest uh, nature qualities of how they exist. That, uh, you know, they are like this, I mean, just on simple examples, that they're going to stay, you know, young and beautiful and attractive forever. That type of thing, which is obviously a myth, an exaggeration. 
and then based on grasping for a false impossible self that doesn't exist but somehow we could make that secure by having that object and never letting go and having more and more of it whatever it uh, might be so uh, I think that what we can uh, try to do is to imagine doing this how we would actually uh, put this uh, don't lend practice uh, into practice to repeat the word practice in the same sentence twice which is not very good English but uh, in any case uh, try to uh, do this and I think what is uh, helpful for uh, uh, understanding the rest of the text is when we try to do this to notice how difficult it is to actually be sincere in doing this and what prevents us from actually wanting to do that you know if you think of all the suffering that uh, people have from this you know addiction you know not only in terms of sexual objects but uh, addiction to their phones addiction to you know drugs um, whatever it uh, might be They're, you know incredible materialism that they just want to get more and more objects more and more things you know this English expression whoever dies with the most toys wins uh, <laughs> so you know you get more and more uh, objects around you and then what are you going to do put them in your pyramid or you know what <laughs> so <laughs> tremendous amount of suffering they're never satisfied and would we really want to have all of that and deal with all of that you know on a global universal level and the suffering that comes from it we want to take that on and uh, somehow dissolve that because you know it's only when you you know speaking before about how do you make that transition from thinking how awful it is that everybody has all this suffering to actually being able to give them happiness and the remedy to all of this well if we're able to dissolve all of this suffering and these disturbing states of mind into the natural pure nature of the mind then it settles down then depending on how we look at it the natural positive qualities the natural joy of the deepest level of the mind and so on that can radiate out so we can make the transition in uh, that type of way or also if we built up a lot of positive force that also allows us to uh, be able to generate that positive force, the happiness, the joy that we can only really reach if we quiet down either to the nature of the mind being clarity and awareness or the nature of the mind on the deepest level being devoid of all you know, all this garbage, naturally pure then we're able to make that transition and have that uh, joy and happiness radiate out to others so it's a very profound method and obviously very advanced so see what a little bit of a taste of that is like and find you know and as I say I think it's uh, helpful 
to get into the rest of the text, which talks about you know, what makes it very difficult for us to do this type of practice. Uh, what do we have to work on in order to be able to practice this on a very sincere level? Okay? In the more extensive text, it says whatever disturbing state of mind that you have, whether it's desire, whether it's anger, whether it's naivety, whether it's pride, arrogance, jealousy, or whatever, you take that on from everybody. Because everybody is equal. We all have the same problem. Nobody is immune to that. And it brings suffering to anybody who has it. Shantideva said, uh, suffering has no owner. You know, I don't try to get rid of it because it's my suffering or it's your suffering. Suffering needs to be removed simply because it's suffering and it hurts. Which is a very, very helpful point to keep in mind. Suffering has no owner. So we'll do this for a few minutes and then we have time for questions till the end of our session and discussion. And when we do this Donglen practice, as is described in the mind training text, we do it in conjunction with the breath, so with and conjunction with compassion and love. So compassion taking on as we breathe in suffering of others and with love the wish for others to be happy as we breathe out, sending them happiness or whatever it is that will, in this case, the understanding of the true nature of the mind that will help them to overcome not be damaged by these disturbing emotions.
Okay. As Dharma Rakshita pointed out, that if we don't practice something like this, then what happens is that uh, there's the danger that we're, when we are in the midst of uh, others who are acting under the influence of uh, addiction and desire and so on, or anger, whatever it might be, that we are going to be carried away and we will be drawn into doing what they're doing. And so we have to be very strong in that type of situation. And this makes a lot of sense if you think in terms of a teenager who is in a group of uh, people and they're all smoking and what, you don't smoke? Or they're all, you know, drinking beer or they're all smoking, you know, taking drugs and so on. They're not strong. Well, of course, you're going to do it as well because you want to be part of, you know, the in crowd. You want to be cool like uh, everybody else. And so there is this danger when, you know, the whole crowd is, you know, I, you know, kill the enemy type of thing. Then, you know, we are drawn into that whole crowd mentality. And so in that situation, which you know, we have so many people being you know, addicted to whatever, that we need to be able to bring it, take it on ourselves, deal with it, and not be carried away by the force of uh, others who are under the control of these disturbing emotions. And we need to be able to recognize that in ourselves, because we're part of everybody. You know, to think, I don't have it, and then you're just taking it on from uh, others. You're not recognizing it in yourself. If we can recognize it in ourselves, and then on top of that, pile on everybody else's suffering, everybody else's experience of that, then, of course, in taking care of everybody's suffering, everybody's uh, disturbing state of mind, we're dealing with our own as well. And one of the things that is uh, very difficult with this Donglen practice is to actually sincerely feel something. It's easy to just, you know, imagine, well, it's coming in and going out, coming in and going out, something like that. And, but you don't feel anything. So the very strong practices of Donglen involve very, uh, really quite horrifying visualizations that we imagine all the suffering or difficulties of others coming into us in completely repulsive, what would normally be repulsive forms, like, you know, diarrhea and vomit and pus and blood and so on, or, uh, you know, really dirty substances, you know, oil and so on, something, ooh, I don't want I don't want this. The strongest one is to imagine it in the form of whatever it is that you're most frightened of. You know, whether that's spiders, whatever it might be, that you take this on. 
because uh, with the and obviously you have to be very strong, you know, emotionally a bit stable and mature to do that. These are the most advanced practices. That uh, because then, you know, I don't want this. You know, I'm afraid of this. You know, I don't. Ooh, ooh. I don't want to do that. I don't want to clean up. You know, take on vomit and diarrhea and so on of other of everybody. So then the strong me, 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 you know, grasping, I don't want this, comes up so strongly. So there are many levels of this Donglen practice. Don't just think in terms of, you know, well, white light, you know, black light comes in and white light goes out and it's just sort of a game. It's not a game. And to actually feel something even though it is, we're imagining it, so it's something like the longing, desire, or the anger that others have. Nevertheless, we try to feel the pain, which is, as Geshe Chikawa says, start with yourself, feel your own pain. That's so important in dealing with our problems is that you have to actually recognize it, acknowledge it, and feel it in order to actually deal with it. So this we do with this Donglen practice. So what questions or comments do you have? Yeah. Can you give him the microphone, please? Um. So this, um, you, you uh, call it uh, being forceful, or often called like being wrathful. Uh, from the perspective of someone who, I guess, is um, born inclined towards a more peaceful uh, style, how would you go about um, cultivating a bit more force? Uh, I feel like, yeah, um, I mean, as you know, with string training, you can sort of start with a lightweight and then slowly, but you can't play around with other people like that. And I sort of feel that people will just break if you say something harsh to them. So well, how, how would a peaceful, mostly peaceful guy go about uh, getting a bit of uh, force? Well, we're not talking about, you know, being very forceful with others. Some situations require that. If your child is about to run into the street with a lot of traffic, you don't say, oh my dear, please don't do that. You have to very strongly grab the kids so that they don't you know, run into the street. But uh, we're talking here in terms of this image of Yamantaka being forceful with ourselves. Yeah, that, that would be neat too. I mean, but also in, in this other ways, just stop it. Stop acting like a baby. Yeah, in, in this Sangha, there are some people that are compassionate and very forceful, and they are able to cut through very quickly sometimes. And I can see it's, I mean, it seems to be helpful in their ability to help others too, to be able to just cut through and not like always having just one way of slowly forever um, being very careful patching up 
Do you understand? Well, but yes, talk? I would love to be able to be a bit more forceful with myself too, now that you mention it. <laughs> <laughs> Buddha was a master of skillful methods, and so we have to see, at least try like that, to modify how we behave with others in, you know, different ways that uh, suit them. It's quite amazing when, uh, I mean, I had the great fortune to be able to be a translator for many great lamas. And when you are uh, translating for them as they are meeting different people, it's amazing how they can be completely different with uh, different people. With some people, they're very gentle. With other people, they are, you know, quite strong. So, like that, we learn to be able to modify our behavior, not just think, well, this is the way that I am, and everybody has to accept me the way that I am. But uh, rather you, you know, dependent arising, the way that you behave depends on uh, others. And there are ways of training. I used to uh, teach a, uh, uh, I was going to a martial arts um, class, that a friend of mine was teaching. And I would uh, give a meditation lesson at the end of the class to uh, the people who were there. And in martial arts, this was a ninjutsu class, so it was a very strong fighting tradition of uh, martial arts. And uh, one of the th ways in which uh, you need to be able to uh, um, function with any type of uh, martial system is that you have to be very strong on the outside but totally peaceful and quiet inside which is a very <laughs> lovely image you know when you have the uh, forceful and peaceful deity mandalas or you have Yamantika on the outside and Mandrashri in his heart that's the same type of uh, uh, structure there so I would have people practice in terms of make a very strong you know uh, gesture, but try to keep your energy completely quiet inside, or shout very loudly, but maintain that uh, peace and quiet inside, to sort of see that uh, you can be very forceful, but also very calm at the same time. Just uh, an exercise, but uh, people seem to find that helpful. I think the main thing that you need to do is not identify yourself, you know, me, I'm a, you know, a peaceful, you know, baby deer, <laughs> and <laughs> Bambi, you know, that uh, sometimes we can be different. It's when we lock ourselves into one type that uh, we're not flexible. Yeah. Um, my question is it on? Is it on? Press the button down or up. Yeah. No, it's not. Just take some time. Um, I'm, I want to try to, <laughs> to uh, pose a question about the Tonglen practice in itself. Please. Yeah. Um, it is taught in very many ways, 
Uh, and as you say, it's a very difficult and uh, advanced practice, really. Um, it is often taught in a, in a light way, where you don't really uh, take on everything. Uh, it's taught in different ways. Sometimes you, uh, it's suggested that you visualize your Buddha nature as a, a white light in your heart, and you take everything into that, and then breathe out from that. And then other, at other times, it's uh, taught in a more, uh, let's say, heavy way that it, uh, you're supposed to take everything in and this is supposed to crack your hard heart mm -hmm. in order to make uh, uh, the loving kindness stream out from, mm -hmm. from your heart. And um, uh, in my experience, I, I haven't uh, practiced it a lot, but I've tried over a number of years to do it. And, um, I think one has to go about uh, stepwise because uh, if one starts uh, right away to take everything in, it's a great danger that one may just end up very depressed and, uh, and also want to reject. Mm -hmm. And that's also what I find in real life when I'm uh, surrounded by uh, suffering and also by uh, mental, um, by the mental poisons, I want to sort of reject it and don't want to have anything to do about it, mm. with it. So, so it's also important to, to in order to crack uh, this um, self-centeredness, and it's important to actually take it in. But do you have any good advice on how to go about in a stepwise manner to, to do this? Well, Dharmarakshita starts by saying that this is what we are aiming for, to be able to do this Dhonglen practice. But only if we are like a peacock, a bodhisattva, are we able to actually do it. Otherwise, if we try to do it when we are not sufficiently trained, we're like crows, and it'll kill us. So similarly, if we try to do this Donglen practice prematurely, then what we do is, you know, if we think of taking on all the suffering, then you just keep it inside you. And you don't know what to do with it. And it completely devastates you. Or it's just too much. And what uh, Dharma Rakshita is saying, he's laying out step by step, you know, what are the obstacles that are preventing us from being able to do this. And the first is our destructive behavior. We get into these, you know, terrible situations and we are compulsively acting like that, either as a hypocrite or whatever. I mean, it goes through, we'll be going through in the second part, all these different situations. So first we have to change our behavior. And once we change our behavior so that we're not so much in these negative habits, then we start to think in terms of, you know, this self-grasping. That's this clump in our heart that, you know, says, I don't want to be in, get involved. That's the self-grasping. And you want to to smash that. So, we, you know, the idea is, you know, I want to smash this. 
Now, in order to be able to smash it, then you have to recognize and be able to work with <coughs> excuse me, the uh, pure nature of the mind. So that's something that we have to become familiar with, we have to understand, we have to become convinced of, and build that up as a, as a habit that we can you know, bring this to our, our attention, our consciousness, so that we can apply it as an opponent. Then you can deal with taking on the suffering of others. If we can't actually dissolve that uh, suffering, use it to penetrate through and smash you know, what's preventing us from doing that, and make the transformation to give happiness to others, then you know, we're not ready to do this to do this practice. And to just do it on, I mean, you can start to do it on a very light level, but uh, I think that doing it on that level is basically, uh, it can help us to develop the aspiration that, I wish I could do it on a real level. I'm doing this now, and okay, but I know that this is not very effective at all, of anything. So I wish that I would be, so I aspire to be able to do it on a, you know, a real level, a sincere level, so that I can really help others. So it helps to develop this uh, uh, aspirational type of uh, state of mind. And that, of course, is, is, is quite helpful. but to recognize that we are basically like, you know, a small child playing house. Yeah. I turned it on. No, you have to turn it on. Yeah, I turned it, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I agree that it's good to do it on this light level too, but uh, in, in, in a way, it's, it can be not so satisfactory because I sort of know that I'm not uh, doing the, right, <laughs> the real thing and, and it feels also that I'm sort of doing a light version. Right, as long as we recognize that it's a light version mm -hmm. and don't call it the real thing, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, thank you. <laughs> that's true of everything in, the, in Buddhism. There's a light version and there's the real thing version. Light version is helpful as long as we recognize that it's the light version. And don't think that that's all that Buddhism is. Then it's okay. And helpful. I have a question in the translation. For the word uh, emptiness, you uh, consistently translated as the void or voidness, and I was wondering why you choose that. I choose that. Why do I choose emptiness over voidness? Uh, emptiness implies, at least in English, I don't think in all languages you have the differentiation, but uh, if we look at the prasangika, view 
then voidness is, uh, you know, really fits that. Emptiness is perhaps more like a Svetantrika or an earlier type of view in which you affirm that there actually is something findable on the conventional level, like I was saying, you know, there actually is a glass there, but there's something which is, you know, absent from it. So it is empty. It's an empty glass. So you have this thing that conventionally it, it's, it is uh, self-established. It actually is. There's something there, but on the deepest level it's not like that. So then empty implies that. Something findable there, and you take something away from it, but there's still something there. Whereas that's not the prasangika view. The prasangika view is uh, the actual meaning of the word shunyata, which is related to the Sanskrit word meaning zero, nothing. That there is nothing from the side of the object that is establishing it. So it's not as though there's something there and we project onto it something that isn't there and you just have to take that away and you're left with what, with what was there all the time. There's nothing that you can actually find. Like I said, in terms of the example of the whole, you can't find the whole. You know, Chandrakirti uses the example of the chariot, so a car. You can't find a car in any of the pieces of the car. That's not the car. And even if you put all the pieces together, that's still not the car. You know, I mean, the thing has to function. It has to, there's the interaction between all of these parts and so on. It's not just a collection, you know, piled on the floor here of all the parts, even if they're put together. And so you can't actually find the whole. It's not that the whole is existing there and, you know, you take something away from it that wasn't, you know, there to start with. So that's why void, you know, an absence, it's a total absence of anything that corresponds to what we imagine, what we're projecting. That's the actual meaning. So I prefer voidness. I think that's far more accurate. Empty always implies that there's something there that's empty. That's not prasanga. That's not the prasangika view, the way I've been taught it. So that's the reason. In the meditation on voidness, first you have you know that uh, you know it's, it appears you know in a false way. That false way doesn't correspond to anything, and yet. You know, when you clear away that it corresponds to anything, still things appear. And when they appear, you understand that it's only appearing like that. But it's like an illusion. It's not that you affirm that something is there and then take something away. So that correlates as well with how you actually meditate on voidness. Okay. <laughs> One last question. Well, it's uh, actually on the same one. I had a sa the same question. Does it work? No. Yeah. Does it work? No. You have to Hello. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, um, whatever. 
we use. I find it confusing. Emptiness is something which is empty, but it is not empty. But when you use void, to me void means nothing. Exactly. Void, but it is not nothing. Exactly, it's not nothing. So, why do we then use void? So, I start using just the word shudhyata mm. to avoid everything which has certain connotations to me. But then when I start reading it, yeah, what is shunyata then? <laughs> Can you <laughs> explain a little bit? Of, to me, it is the non-conceptual mind, the wisdom mind, where we have no more object, subject, focus, nothing. So it is the wisdom mind, but it is of course very difficult to imagine what it is then. So it is the nature of mind, the true nature of mind. Could you please explain a little bit of what, how you would, I mean it's a vast subject, but what is Shunya? Okay, we'll try to do this in a, in a short way. <laughs> Shunyata means a total absence. Something is totally absent. It's not that everything is absent, but something specific is absent. And what's absent is that something corresponds to what we imagine. We imagine, you know, the mind produces an appearance of something that is self-established from its own side, and that doesn't correspond to reality. There's nothing establishing it. So the word that is used is uh, something holding up what we are focusing, what, what is our object of uh, focus. So for instance, if you think in terms of a uh, piece of scenery in a play, you know, there's something holding it up. You know, a prop that's holding it up from the side of the, of the scenery. So like in a movie, maybe that there's something on the side of the screen that's holding up, you know, in actuality, what appears there. There's nothing holding it up from that side. It's all coming established in terms of the, the interaction, you know, with the mind. It's like with uh, quantum physics that, you know, the particle here or there, it's only in the, with the interaction of the observer that it appears in one place. You know, so that is what we mean by non-duality. Not that these are separate, but the interaction, dependent arising. But there's nothing that it is actually, well, where is it really? You know, well, there isn't no where is it really. Type of thing. So when we talk about an absence, it's not the extreme of nihilism, that there's nothing. Like, for instance, uh, there is an absence of an apple on this table. So what do you see when you see there's no apple on the table? You see nothing on the table. But that nothing is not just nothing, is it? It's not an apple. No, you know, there's no apple there. 
So we know what it is the absence of. So it's not the absence of absolutely everything, although it looks like the absolute absence of everything. Because it looks like nothing, there's nothing there. So when you focus on voidness, there's no appearance. But that doesn't mean that the nihilist extreme, that nothing exists, that there isn't anything. Conventionally, things do exist, they function. So I think the closest word is an absence, an absence of what's impossible, what doesn't exist. It never could be that you could find, you know, a whole hand somewhere in this mass of atoms. Can't find it. There is no whole hand that's there. But when we look at it, we have the convention that the hand, we all agree that's a hand. You know, to a tiny microscopic insect, you know, what is it? How do they perceive it? So things are very, you know, very different. You know, a little bacteria inside, you know, blood vessel of, of the hand. Well, what is a hand to that little bacteria? So everything, when we talk about non-duality, it doesn't mean that everything is one, you know, undifferentiated soup. That certainly is not what we mean when we, you know, say non-dual. We don't have two separate entities that can't possibly interact. That uh, it's things are dependently arising on the mind, which then can be understood on many, many different levels. So, like that. Anyway, let's take our break and then we'll continue. A little bit past the the time, but we can take a half hour break and start at ten after four. <laughs>